welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Hey, uh, Yasha. Hey, Sunil. Did you, uh, did you take a shower this morning? Are you, are you saying something about how this room smells? Uh, just saying that it gets a little tight in here and sometimes, uh, sometimes it feels like you should spend a little extra time with that soap. Man, there is literally nothing that is more important for me to get my day started than waking up and taking a shower. And water is just not something that we think about every day, but it's, it's a basic human right. I like dare say, take it for granted. Uh, and so that's why we brought uh, Tiffany Bell on uh, the podcast today. And so Tiffany is doing some really, really interesting work around helping the city of Detroit with basic water rights. Uh, a really fascinating story about an entrepreneur, an engineer who sees a problem, reads about a problem, and doesn't just say, boy, that's, that's rough, but actually does something about it. Yeah, the human utility is a Y Combinator not-for-profit uh, you know, sort of funded with the purpose of helping people who can't afford their water bill pay their water bills. And as as we discovered, some pretty extreme things can happen to you that you don't even think about if you don't pay your water bill. This is a, a really eye-opening and I think important discussion overall. And we're super happy to have Tiffany on the show today. We hope you enjoy. Tiffany, how many podcasts have you done? Um, Maybe four or five. Maybe. maybe. Four or five. Um, thank you for driving all the way across the bridge to make it here to the San Francisco side of the Bay Area this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, it it was a harrowing journey over, right? Yes, it was. It's like it's never going to get good here with traffic, ever. Like ever, 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 ever. I know yeah, it's Friday, too. Yeah. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It's always just like a bunch of cars on the bridge. So, Did, uh, did you grow up in the Bay Area? I did not. I actually was a military brat. So I grew up, I was born in Georgia and then finished high school in North Carolina, but in between lived in Germany, Fort Knox, Kentucky, North Carolina again. Um, and by the way, the Fort Knox gold vault is actually in the middle of a golf course. So really? it's not even. <laughs> What's that? Like, I, um, I think I've like vaguely talked to people who said that they've grown up as an army brat, but what's that like? Like, what's the, how do you have to think about being a human being growing up and an army brat? Um, you get used to moving every three or four years, which is a good thing on some levels, but then not because you kind of like it for me, it was always like, as soon as I stopped feeling like the new kid, my dad gets orders to move. And so it was like, socially, it's like, okay, well, I'm your friend for a little while, but then like, I have to leave. So, but it's nice, like with modern times to use Facebook to reconnect to people. So you get that kind of aspect. So are you in the camp of Facebook is good or Facebook is bad? Nowadays, I don't know. Like, it's there's all these things as far as the election went. So I'm like, okay, it's bad in that aspect. But as far as keeping up with people, I still use it for that yeah. purpose. I don't really have a good or bad sort of thought about it. So. Neutral on Facebook. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And how did you end up in the Bay Area? So I used to run an old startup called Pencil UN way back when, and it didn't do well. So, um, But I am an obsessive Twitter user. And an organization called Code for America followed me on Twitter, and it was like, well, there's something new to do. And like they, they, have a one, they had a one-year fellowship at the time in 2014, and I got the fellowship and moved out here and haven't left. 
So, do, at the point in time that you were growing up as an army brat, and you go to college and yes. all that kind of good stuff, were you ever thinking to yourself, I, "I have to be in the Bay Area at some point in time in my life"? Is that important? Not really. Um, not in terms of, like it didn't matter, but it just I feel like as long as you have an internet connection, it doesn't matter where you are. But I feel like for certain things, it has been and probably is helpful for people. So yeah. So, so in 2014, could you paint the picture of what it was like to show up in Silicon Valley for the first time? Well, it wasn't the first time, actually. So 2011, I came out here as part of an accelerator called the New Me Accelerator. And it was based on like finding minority entrepreneurs and helping them get funding for their startups. And so we were part of this whole uh, CNN documentary, Black in America 4, where they follow black entrepreneurs trying to get funding for their startups um, for a whole summer. I remember and, that, actually. Oh, you remember that? Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. So so that was summer 2011. We stayed down in Mountain View, but that was like the first extended time I was here. There's no better city in the Bay Area to feel like you're in the Bay Area than Mountain View. Really? <laughs> I and Nobody can see this as a listener, but this is my sarcastic face. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was nice. It was very suburban, and we lived across the street from NASA, basically, and it was just like, oh, it's nice down here. It rained one time that summer, and, you know, so. So uh, I, there's so many topics I want to I wanna get into that are Valley-related, but uh, how did that CNN series change your life, if it did? Um, It's interesting to just, first of all, like, have your entire life, like, filmed by somebody where somebody actually wants to watch you brush your teeth with a camera involved um like so so it really is let's (laughs) let's dig into that a little bit yeah so is it really that level where they followed you around with a camera everywhere but the bathroom um they wanted to i think at some points in time i was able to just kind of be like well i'm like doing my hair you don't want to see this you're not going to use this footage so that kind of thing um but most of the things we did involving our companies, the camera was there. So you kind of had to get used to like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to go to um, K-Port to pitch, for example, like, well, walk around this corner again. We're trying to get footage of you coming in the building and stuff like that. So it's like staged in that way. You get used to all that. But it's it's funny to start off, though. Our, uh, after what's a decade ago plus, right? 15 years ago? So this was, or no, yeah, uh, 2011. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, just a several years ago. Are you happy in retrospect with the way that the editors and uh, portrayed you as a uh, individual? I am actually, because I kind of knew what to do as far as like, I don't have any media training, but it's almost like my thought process was like, we signed a release. So whatever you end up saying and doing, they can use it. And so I would say like the super controversial stuff off camera or whatever, but then on camera, it's, oh yeah, I'm doing this or whatever. So I was happy. Some people at times weren't, but I'm like, well, you got to remember we signed things and they can do whatever with the footage. So, so that was, so 2011, let's fast forward to 2019, August. Yeah. Uh, have things gotten better for minority entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley? Um... I would say yes and no. Like you're seeing more black founders, for example, getting funding. But as far as, you know, it being a mass thing that isn't still a questionable thing for investors to do, that's not happening still. People are still having problems with raising money um, at levels, for example, that white male founders do. Um, And especially women even still having problems raising money. So things are getting better as far as people like Arlen Hamilton, for example, that are raising funds to be able to invest in, you know, black and brown entrepreneurs. But She's like one of very few people that do that. So it's still yeah. So why why is that? Can we dig into that? What sure. is it? Uh, wh- what is, what is happening? 
So, I mean, it's, I think it's a bunch of things. Like, we always talk about, like, pattern matching, for example, and how, like, it's easier to invest in someone that looks like you because you've got a lot of similar experiences. And you're like, oh, we all went to Stanford. We all went to MIT. And you kind of think of those people as being similarly capable to you. Um, and so when someone different comes along, you're not really sure about them. And so it's, it's, it's a bias in that way. So some people, they say it's just flat out racism. I don't always think that's the case. I think it's literally like some people just don't believe that certain people can do certain things. And it comes out in terms of funding. Like, I mean, it's, and it's not dramatically different from just the way the workplace has always been, if you think about it. Like men back in the 50s, like sexual harassment. If you watch an episode of Mad Men, you totally see it where it's just like, oh, we're just used to women being in a certain position or blacks in a certain position. And I think that's carried over as far as, you know, funding goes, basically. So it's like I'm used to a black person, you know, sometimes I don't I hate to say it, but like doing DoorDash versus like, you know, actually running a company. So this is where I see you. So this is why I have problems funding you. And so and so has that you know, since two thousand eleven, do you think that that perception has changed and uh, you know, has has there been any progress made? I think there's been progress made, but it's been more as far as like people of color raising their own funds and then coming in and investing in other people of color. Um, you still don't see organizations like Sequoia, for example, investing in black and brown founders in a, in a serious way. Um, so I think when it comes to stuff like that, like the big funds that actually could take the risks of that nature, they don't. And so it's kind of like, you know, what, what would have to happen to change the perception and move the needle in like some sort of dramatic way? Like, so if there, if there was like an event or something, what would, what would, you know, a couple things that would have to happen to change this and move the, move the needle forward? I think mm, one thing, a founder of color, um, having a huge exit would help. Um, and not that that's not coming, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, or at least not in terms of like, someone black or brown building a Google, basically, like that kind of thing happening. But then also just like investors getting over like human nature, I think, which is a lot harder to deal with um, and not thinking of certain people in a certain way and just like taking a chance and just like innate bias. Right, right. Innate bias and getting past that kind of thing and just thinking about it from the terms of, you know, we have a portfolio of companies that we can afford to have certain risks. So we why not just take a chance on this black woman who's building a thing that they have the numbers, but for some reason still we can't get past the fact that she's a black woman. There's no event that's going to change a bias, though. Right? No. Like the- well, what's interesting is, I mean, the way, uh, you know, we, we've had we've had other guests like Lisa Fetterman talk about bias with, with investors and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, the way you're explaining it to, to us right now makes complete sense. It's completely rational. So when you have this conversation, not on a podcast, but with, say, an investor from Sequoia or wherever, some hypothetical VC fund, what's their reaction to this? Because they, they, they're smart people and they should be aware of their, their own biases. How would they react to you having this conversation with them? I mean, that's interesting. I don't know. I've never had the conversation with them, but I feel like... Um, I think they perhaps would point to the numbers and just say, well, we've never had this person, you know, do this kind of thing. I mean, it, it's it's a hard thing to kind of say what they would say, because um, there's a bunch of things they could say. 
as far as like numbers or we, you know, this is a relationship driven sort of thing, which also wouldn't help them to say that. But I think that's like the the low level thought process around it. But I think they would probably point to the numbers and just say, well, you know, we found that, you know, when we invest in white guys, they, you know, offer these kinds of returns versus women or whatever. But it's it's like a self-perpetuating sort of thing. So, of course, that's who has the success if that's who you take the chance on. So um, and. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned some of the work that Arlen is doing. Who else is out there uh, kind of, you know, doing the work of investing in black and brown founders? So I think about Monique Woodard. She used to be at 500 Startups, but she has a fund that she invests in black and brown founders. Who else can I think of um, as far as some of the most active people? I mean, those are the two that I follow. I'll say that, um, that I've seen actually make investments and not just talk about. So. Can we uh, go back to 2014 a little bit, so time shift. So sure. you show up back into the Bay Area, second time, mm-hmm. um, as a, a Code for America kind of member. Fellow. As a grant fellow? Yeah. A fellow. And then what happens here for you? So, I mean, we the way that was set up was just a one-year fellowship. You have a team of three people that go into, at the time, uh, 10 cities. Um, you pick a city. I was with Atlanta, so we worked on a couple of things for the city, but the whole point was just to take technologists or sort of programmer, um, a user experience person and a designer and go in and, and like use those skills and talents to like improve something service delivery wise for cities. So we worked on um, helping Atlanta with some infrastructure bonds and like participatory budgeting and that kind of thing. Team also built... Um, a text messaging solution because people were like, if when you whenever you get pulled over in Atlanta, you have to like go to court. So if you had a broken headlight, you have to go to court for that. But they don't give you a court date on the spot, and so you had like literally city council members that were going to jail because they like didn't show up to court basically um, because they didn't have a date. So the team built a thing that like let you get a text message date or whatever. Um, we also rebuilt the city's procurement website, which let people just do business with the city easier. Um, but that was, you know, a smallish amount of the time that I was spending here. So summer of 2014, I read about what was happening in Detroit with water bills, where this was an article in The Atlantic that talked about how 100,000 people were about to have to live without running water because they couldn't afford the bills in Detroit. Um, because ironically, Detroit and Flint have some of the most expensive water in the country. Um, but also, these are not places that have the best economic prospects. And so people couldn't afford the bills and their solution, the city's solution was just to shut their water off versus actually having something in place to help them. So I was, you know, in City Hall in Atlanta all the time at that point. And I was thinking to myself, like, what kind of decisions had to be made for them to decide, like, instead of helping demonstrably poor people, like I've been to people's houses, they don't have furniture and things like that, unless it was in the backyard when I showed up or something, but like, they don't have furniture. Um, and so they're obviously not taking money and just going shopping or something. But if you have people that are that poor, what kind of decisions did you make at City Hall to, like, you know, decide to turn these folks off or whatever? So it, it was curious for me because of everything that I saw in Atlanta. Um, so my co-founder at the time, Christy Tillman, and I decided, like, to like we could spend 100 bucks in a weekend on a crappy restaurant here in San Francisco. Why not give that money to somebody to pay their water bill? But it turned into this whole thing. Tell us about, um, you know, I, I read one of your Medium posts about um, sort of the situation, why people are unable to pay uh, water bills. Right. Um, give us, like, a really hard-hitting story on the ground maybe that you've experienced with 
an individual or a group of individuals that you know would really connect uh, with with our audience? I mean, so I think about like one of the worst stories is this woman losing custody of her granddaughter because she couldn't pay her water bill. Like the toilet in the house was running and she couldn't fix that. Um, I think it might have been one or two because like the way some Detroit houses are set up, there's like a toilet in the basement for some reason or whatever. Um, but she had this bad plumbing situation and the water bill got up to 1400 bucks. She only needed half of that, but like only is relative when you're like a senior citizen fixed income trying to take care of your six-year-old granddaughter um so 700 bucks was obviously a lot to her and she didn't have that so um the water company shut her water off but because of just the situation around why she had her granddaughter the child protective services organization was very much you know in her business basically and so when they saw that she didn't have running water um they came and they put her granddaughter in foster care over that so she's in some rich suburb in michigan thanks to the water bill whoa (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) foster care yes yes they were she was taken away because the way it works is that if you don't have water at your house theoretically it's actually a dwelling that's quote-unquote unfit for habitation and when there's kids in a dwelling unfit for habitation that makes you basically an unfit parent even if the cause is poverty so they can take your kids away if you don't have water at your house. So that seems like really punitive. That's um, very and punitive. And so is that, uh, I mean, what how, who makes that policy? Like, what is, the, like, how can they possibly justify that? I mean, that's the Department of Health and Human Services at the very top. But then every state-based organization follows the same thing, where they have their guidelines as far as what an unfit parent is and then also what an unfit dwelling is and they don't they don't in a lot of cases especially in this one they don't take it into account that she's poor the child is technically fine yes there's no water in the house but like this is not like your typical case of abuse or whatever um and so they took her her granddaughter away but that's how that goes and so these are policies that have been in place uh, well before the current administration yes i think this is part of the like at least the little bubble that we live in in the Bay Area, like, yeah. I think sometimes we just don't recognize the horrific kind of system that we put in place that disadvantages so yes. many people. Um, we maybe feel a little bit more now because we have a, a um, an antagonist that we, yes. that many people in the Bay Area dislike <laughs> right. a lot. Right. Uh, and so we, we hear about it a little bit more, but that's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, that happens. But, I mean, that's not the first instance of that. I mean, you have people that – it's the thing that people are well aware of can happen. So you have some folks that will proactively take their kids and be like, you know, you're going to your aunt's house, you're going to your grandma's house, you're going to your dad's house to like, you know, keep them in custody on their own terms, basically, but knowing they don't have water in the house. So we had one woman, again, in that instance, I just talked about like a single mother, three kids, and she divided her kids up amongst other relatives. And she stayed in the house herself without water because she knew someone found out you know, those kids would be taken away. And like the foster care system is not one that you can guarantee the kids will stay together and that kind of thing. And so you, like you said, have a very punitive system going on um, over money, basically. And like, if you think about it, putting this child in foster care for, she was in there at least six months. So you think about the cost to taxpayers, it would have been cheaper to just find her grandmother some assistance for that 700 bucks. Like we gave her, um, but, like, you think about the cost of taxpayers and keeping a kid, a six-year-old kid, in foster care for six months, it, it didn't make sense from that perspective either. So, 
Yeah, so, and then I, when I read your Medium post, I, I visited Detroit last year. I went to high school in Cleveland, uh, nice. and, you know, I, I hadn't been back to Detroit, you know, Cleveland area in quite a while. And, whoa, the city is, yeah. you know, seems like it's prospering in some ways. Um, but, you know, do you, I mean, has any of this, you know, prosperity helped in any in any sort of way for, you know, situations like this? Or is it just continuing to to get worse for people who are living in abject poverty? I think it's it's getting worse um, because you have certain pockets of the city where like, oh, you know, if it's midtown, downtown, you can get grants to do certain things, for example, like, you know, fix up buildings or whatever. But if you live on the outskirts, which is where most people that we, we help live, there's nothing really for you. And so... Um, the story that Detroit tells is one of revitalization and, oh, you know, we're recovering as a city and we don't need the auto industry. We're, you know, doing our own thing. But they're not, not everybody is included in that narrative. And so it's it's one where it's kind of a look at us, we're gentrifying kind of. Um, but like it's not including everybody. So it's not really a story of success to me. It's like it's very targeted in that way. So we've jumped around a little bit in time, too. So we're you're in. Atlanta, you're working with Code for America on Atlanta. You're helping Atlanta kind of upgrade some of its uh, tech, yes. its oversimplification. Yes. You read the story in The Atlantic about Detroit, and we've just heard some of the stories about what you and human utility have been focused on. But like, what's the like, what's that story? What happens in between there? How do you start it? Um, so it was funny. We just like read about it, and then like later that so that was the Thursday. We read about it, and then like later that day, just threw up a website on was it Heroku and GitHub, with just literally Bootstrap and a Google form that we made to look like just a regular website or whatever. Um, yeah, so we didn't have a we didn't have a database. Like it was nothing except like a website that. Everything got pushed to Google Spreadsheets, and then we used that. Initially, the way it was set up, it was designed to find people that needed help with their bills, but we were doing everything over social media, so those people were not on Twitter. So what ended up happening, though, is that people started saying, well, I want to give you know some money to this or whatever. So we had to kind of change the website to make it more donor-friendly. So mm-hmm. you could pledge 50 bucks or whatever the number was for you, and we would send you via email instructions on how to log into the water company's website as if you were that person. And then like over 10,000 people signed up to do that. Um, and so we ended up paying like 100K in bills in that first month that we existed. So 10,000 people. And how, how does that happen? Was it some some press? Was it what, what was the thing that kind of, you know, got it from zero to 10,000 so quickly? I mean, that was Twitter and then press. It turned into like I got stuck in my apartment for two weeks talking to just the media. Like even one of the local stations came out and brought a news van to the house or whatever, which is funny because like they have a bodyguard for it and, and whatever else. But I got stuck in the house talking to the press for two weeks. Um, I have a friend in from college in New York, Sakita Holly. She's a PR person. We had so many requests. We had to ask her to help us because it's like we're trying to do the work and people want to talk to us. And, you know, can you do this for us or whatever? It got to be that kind Connecting of Connecting it back to the Bay Area, do you have any big supporters in the Bay Area and the tech industry that are helping with this? Yeah. I mean, so we're a Y Combinator-backed nonprofit. Um, there's people like Hunter Walk at uh, Homebrew Ventures. I mean, not Ventures, but just Homebrew. Who's also been a guest on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Nice, nice. He's one of our biggest supporters here. Um there's been a lot of people from tech. I mean, Mozilla donated at one point. So, you know, um, a lot of folks. So so uh, where do you want to go with this organization? Like, where does it, you know, where is there is there an end point? Does this just keep going in perpetuity? What What's your big vision? 
The big vision is policy change. I mean, it's it's we can keep paying bills, but it just needs to be that from either a national perspective, preferably, but from a state perspective, even that each state or from a national perspective, they, there's some policy that says, you know, water is a human right. And regardless of your financial situation, we shouldn't be able to just say you can't take a shower just because you're poor, because at the end of the day, that's kind of what's happening. Um, and every other utility, especially in Michigan, like I thought it was interesting to find out every other, other, every other utility except water is regulated. So, I mean, that's why you had the Flint situation even, but there need to be stronger laws in place to say that even if you're poor, you get at least a lifeline allotment of water. I mean, we do that with phones. So why not the thing that you need every morning? Like we all took showers this morning, hopefully. Um, but like, yeah, doesn't smell like you did. I think like, water rates are fascinating. Yeah. We had uh, Dennis Herrera, uh, who's the attorney general for San Francisco on as well, and he, yeah. like his point of view is that water rights are going to be the next kind of big uh, human rights battleground. Yeah. And it, like the largest, isn't the largest municipality in America, MWD, the Metropolitan Water District down in Los Angeles? Like it's like water's at the center of everything. And yeah. I mean, the Cadillac Desert, the movie Chinatown, this is all about water rights in right. California and right. like all the nasty stuff that happens around right. water and, and water ownership and water sale. Yeah, it's crazy. Because I mean, it's the thing that's just there, but humans have decided to put their, you know, capitalistic hands into it. And then... <laughs> what do you think of San Francisco? Yeah, do you like the Bay Area? I do, actually. Um, I like it. It's expensive, sometimes for no good reason, especially as far as like housing policy and whatnot. But I generally like it. I mean, the weather's nice. So so how, uh, what, do you see similar issues to what you encounter in Detroit in the Bay Area? Like, shock us with a Bay Area story. If we had to connect it back to the Bay Area, um, is there something that you see in the water rights front or anywhere else that's just kind of, it's just not good? I mean, I think of homelessness here as a problem, but then also how you can be evicted from your house for not having water and that kind of thing. Um, so tell us more about that. I mean, again, it's about like, you know, fitness for habitation and whatnot. So if you don't have just basic utilities, that's not a house you can technically be living in. And, you you know, especially if you have a landlord that says, well, you know, you're costing me money because what happens is that if you don't pay a water bill in a lot of places, it gets added to the property taxes, which the homeowner, which is typically not the person renting, is responsible for. So you can get evicted over stuff like that. Um, and there's people that have been. But if you think about, like, just homelessness and its causes, that's one of them for a lot of people. But also, like, here, homelessness is pretty bad. Because you think about how much money is here. There's nobody that should be sleeping on the streets here, theoretically. But we won't build houses and that kind of thing. So that's a thing that happens. What part of the Bay Area do you call home now? So I live by Lake Merritt in Oakland. Yeah. Yeah. So do you uh, – this morning we were joking a little bit about how you've entered over here, but you've over here being the San Francisco side. Yes. Um, do you not spend a lot of time in San Francisco proper? Not anymore because yeah. I don't usually work over here. Um, I come over here for just, like, what, shopping and going to the beach, but yeah. that's about it. Podcasts podcasts yes <laughs> what uh what would it take to get you to work on some of the bay area problems like so you know, you're spending this time you know helping uh great city of detroit but why why not also focus on is you know on the bay area um i don't know that's a good question um i think there are people that are already doing a bunch of work around it um especially like the housing stuff or whatever i don't that would be the thing I worked the the most enthusiastically on, like housing policy here. But I don't know enough about it yet to actually like 
have some useful impact. I don't think it's entirely something that, not that water is, but I don't think it's entirely something I could like build a tech solution for to fix. It's that's totally a policy angle that t- to even start would need that kind of thing. So what, what, what happens next for you? Like, where do you, where do you spend your energy five years from now? That's a good question. Um, hopefully not still fighting water policy, but I think it will be because again, I, I would prefer this stuff to be enshrined in policy on a national basis. And that's going to take longer than five years, especially with the current administration in place and then Congress not exactly being the most amenable place to, to policies that actually help people. It's <laughs> um, a very uh, nice way to say it. Right. So, I mean, and so if what's his face gets reelected, that's four more years of just, you know, a reversal of a lot of things that actually help people. Like you think about just like the attempts at dismantling Obamacare, like that actually helped people, some of which are still for some reason, you know, Trump supporters. Um, but the environment is not such that policies like the things I'm interested in are supported at this point. So. What are the top three things outside of water rights that you're worried about right now from government public policy perspective in the United States? Just three things that maybe are not obvious or maybe are obvious that kind of you wake up in the morning, you're freaked out about. Um, I would say homelessness, um, LGBTQ rights and education as issues. Can we uh, dig in on number one a little bit more first? So homelessness, what uh, what in particular about homelessness is, you know, you kind of, is there something if you had to zoom in, if it, is it an underlying cause? Is it, what is it particularly? We think about it in the Bay Area, just people not wanting to build housing basically, because I think I've heard the phrase like the Manhattanization of San Francisco. People don't want that. Um, which I can see from a visual perspective, probably not being great. But if that means that you're supporting, you know, like or fighting a homeless shelter being built in your neighborhood. No, it's not always the most visually appealing thing to have there. But if that means other human beings have a place to stay, how could you roll over in the morning and like schedule yourself to go to a meeting to to fight against something like that? It doesn't make sense to me. Um I just think about that just, again, from just a human perspective. That's someone else's son or daughter that you're okay with sleeping on the corner because you don't want a homeless shelter in your neighborhood or you don't even want, like, to build housing to at least make it where we can drive prices down. And these people could have somewhere to stay. Like Even if you did that, you wouldn't have to worry about the homeless shelter then. So it's like there's ways to support doing the right thing that, of course, don't always, you know, negatively affect you. But it's a matter of, like, taking the initiative to actually support that kind of stuff. And then zooming in on number two, uh, tell us a little bit about LGBTQ rights and why you're, you know, why you're why you're worried at the moment. Right. So I think about, like, of course, you know, gay people can get married at this point. But you have a lot of, um, especially, like, black trans women being killed and it's not a thing that's being talked about at the level that it should be, but it's also a thing that's happening. And there aren't, like, protections where, I mean, of course you're not supposed to kill people and you can go to jail for that. But it's it's a thing that's just kind of like, oh, that's too bad. You know, they should have been doing whatever, you know, in that case. So it's, it's kind of overlooked, um, which I think people should have the right to live how they want to. And if that's what you feel more comfortable expressing yourself as, transitioning from a man to a woman, like... What's wrong with that? You shouldn't be in fear of being killed because you met the wrong person and they, you know, because 
a lot of men will frame it as you know oh they you know they didn't know that this person was a woman i mean previously a man so like oh you tricked me and then that person is is killed um and that just shouldn't be a thing and there should be support for that um in different ways so yeah, i think people just ought to be able to be who they are right um w- when you think about education more broadly like what's your involvement in kind of the world of education Right. So, I mean, one thing that I do is I occasionally give to, like, Amazon wish list campaigns for teachers because, like, the school year in a lot of places just started. And we literally have teachers paying for school supplies out of their own salaries. And they don't make anything anyway. So if you think about just, like, um, paying for pencils or just, like, you know, teachers wanting to do things like having iPads in the classroom, they're having to fund that stuff themselves. But yet, as a country, we can pay to, like, have... Of course, there's value in it, but having the most, uh, the strongest military in the world, we spend money on that rather than education. And I think that's pretty silly because a more educated populace, I think, is a more peaceful one. Um, and a lot of problems that we have come from people not having the education that they should. Or, you know, people um, will go to school, but their education is somehow subpar because of teachers for example not having basic things that they need to in order to teach a certain way and just there's no excuse for it to me do are, are you optimistic about the future of the country and <laughs> and really specifically the bay area I, like you're clearly working on something that's important yeah. that's impacting people in a positive way so you gotta have some optimism in you but like do you feel good about the future um yes and no at times yes because i think about the work that i'm doing but i think about all these other problems in the world and it's like Generally, yes, I'll say I'm optimistic, but as far as like day to day, no. <laughs> so, yeah. but it just a lot of it depends on what's going on at the top. And if you have a person who's there who's dismantling a lot of good policy that is, and then like actively having people be assaulted and killed, that's kind of a hard thing to be optimistic. It's hard hard to be optimistic in that kind of environment. So, you're big on on Twitter, and uh, <laughs> I just want to get your take on Twitter. Uh, when you look at Twitter, how do you feel? Do you feel good? Do you feel so? I, I'll just write my answer is when I look at Twitter, I just get massively depressed. <laughs> right? It's like it's where I look for bad information. Like what's bad that's happening? I'm gonna go to Twitter. Right. I think a lot of it comes down to who you interact with on Twitter. Like I look at it too and see terrible things. But if you find people that are doing uplifting work or post affirmations or I don't know. I think it's really just based on who you follow and who you interact with. And a lot of people like to not follow, but like a hundred people. And if like, you know, 50 of them are tweeting the worst stuff that's happened that day, then that's what you're going to get. But if you follow a broader range of people who are in different industries, different age groups, different points in life, they've got kids. So you see them posting their toddler one day and yeah, it might be like toddler and then like mass murder and then like, you know, puppy or something, but you get like a more balanced view depending on how you like curate. So it's feed curation basically. I think that's the key to it. If, uh, if you were the CEO for Twitter, uh, what kind of changes would you put in place? I think the biggest thing that I've seen over time is people being abused on the platform and like not enough being done about that. And I feel like if we can do things like, and this is not even a hard thing to do, but just analyzing sentiment and they're doing that. um, But just watching how that kind of thing evolves in a, in a mass sort of way. Like if your system is finding that, Oh, 
all of a sudden all these angry tweets are being directed at this person and that's been a pattern in the system for that person that would suggest like this person's probably being harassed so we should do something about it like a lot of people are just like oh the twitter should have the edit button i'm just like you should read your tweets beforehand and then you know worry about that but like i think the biggest thing they could work on is abuse and they're not for some reason or at least not in a way that people feel safe entirely the way they should be able to it's a good segue to our uh, last question as we're getting close to time. Yasha, I'll let you do the honors. Well, we are talking about Twitter. And as Sunil said, you are kind of big on Twitter. So if you were to give a recommendation to our listeners of someone whom is uplifting, that's the, uh, that's the filter for the way that we're going to ask the question today on Twitter, um, who would that be? And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask one more follow-on that's of a similar vein. But let's talk about Twitter first. Um... I feel like there's a lot of different things that I would recommend. One is um, the new Zora account on Twitter. So actually, like Medium has their magazine Zora after named after Zora Neale Hurston. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that comes from women of color that it's written there. Um, of course, I love Anil Dash on Twitter. Um, Who doesn't? Yeah, right. Like he's it's all about mangoes. Right. Like mango. He actually has me eating those. Whereas before, I was like, I don't know what the hell this is. But. You know how happy he's going to be <laughs> to hear that you're eating mangoes because of him. Right. Um, but then, like, I guess I wish I had like looked further. Um, it's a lot of different people. Like people I went to school with. Or, I, so I guess I can say this. If you follow me, like my username is just my first name. So it's T-I-F-F-A-N-I. But people that I retweet fairly often, that's who I get a lot of value from. So it's not just one person really for me. Um, but those two I could say. I like that. So uh, let's move away from Twitter. And let's ask you the same question, but with a, a broader lens. Like where are you spending your time? And how would you recommend uh, our listeners uh, spend their time online right now? Um, this is kind of sad. It's a combination between Reddit and Twitter still. Um, I think I really like communities of people that you can just interact with and just talk to in a fairly low friction, low anxiety sort of basis, but still build a lot of community from, um, you know, Reddit's been interesting just for things like reading about business or investing or whatever. Um, has that always been the case for you or is that happening recently? So Reddit is a recent thing. I've had an account for years, but mm-hmm. I just kind of picked it up after different things have happened. And it was like, oh, this is kind of nice to like read through or whatever. And people just kind of. I, I don't think I've ever <laughs> heard anybody say, yeah, I was on Reddit. That was kind of nice. Right. I mean, that's that's funny. But it, again, I think it's about what you follow and what you get into. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so Tiffany, this was awesome. Thank um, you. we really appreciate you spending time with us today, uh, and hearing about some of the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Do you feel like, uh, there's a problem that you want to, or could solve tomorrow? Yeah, I know. It, it's, it's hard to think about not, you know, actually putting your hat in the ring and doing something for, you know, the sake of civic responsibility after this episode. I think back through a handful of the guests that we've had on the podcast over the last year, and that is an absolute recurring theme. There are some really special human beings who see a problem and do something about it. And there's there's a really nice connection into the Bay Area ethos broadly that if you see a problem, you can solve it and you can use technology to solve it. I thought today's conversation was, um, we can jump over that a little bit. You can just solve a problem. You can use technology to do that. 
Yeah, and you know, public policy in general, we just don't think about ramifications of our of our actions. I think that's just a way that we're we're conditioned when we when we focus on entrepreneurship. But really thinking through all the public policy ramifications is just something that I'd like to be a little bit more thoughtful about. Yeah, me as well. We'll have to think about that for some future guests. Um, I really like today's episode, um, and I just absolutely love you, Sunil. In fact, I love you so much that if I could, I would go back and rate this podcast five stars on the place that I listen to it on. You know why I would do that? Why would you do that? Because when I go out, or really when you as the listener goes out, finds this podcast on the place that you found the podcast, rates us five stars, and and even potentially leaves us a comment. It helps more people find this podcast. And, and there's nothing more that Sunil and I appreciate than our listeners helping more people find this podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show.